we need a hope in the future. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 shares with us a future that can cause our daily activity to still be meaningful, whether we are 5 or 105. Let's join our study leader, Dave Wardson, as he concludes our study of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, talking to us about how to stop trudging and to start abounding. Stay with us. We all need a reason to get a little skip in our step. You're going to all be changed. And it's not going to be because you earned it. It's not going to be because you worked for it. It's going to be because of a gift, a marvelous gift. We don't know when it's going to be, but the Apostle Paul was excited about it, thinking it might happen when he was living. And my own belief is if the Apostle Paul was standing on tippy toes when he lived his life, then what should I be doing? We've been walking along the edge of a cliff. You see, when we look at history from the perspective of eternity, like I've often shared with you, at the cross of Calvary, you come to the edge of the cliff, and the great victory is won, and the resurrection proves that the war is won. Then you start walking along the edge of the cliff of time, and you're always that one step away, one twinkle of an eye away from the big change. Look what it says. It says, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. It's going to happen in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye. Be very thankful the Lord did not say with a blink of the right eye. Because I could work from now until eternity, and I can't blink my right eye. You see, that's why my body needs to be changed. There's something wrong with my right side. You see, I can blink with this eye, but I can't with this eye. But it doesn't say a blink. No, I mean, it doesn't say a wink. It says not even a blink, a blink. You ever have people, you know, that go like this? That's a blink. Now, what's a twinkling of an eye? Well, you're all doing it. If you're not, your eye is just as dry as it can be. The twinkling of an eye is that, that flash with your eye that keeps your eyes moist, that you don't even know. In fact, it doesn't even hardly blur your vision. In fact, now you're all aware of it. It'll probably bug you the rest of the service. But ordinarily, you don't even know it. You don't even think about it because it's so fast that it barely interrupts your line of vision. And that's the word that's used here. And that's how fast it's going to be. Just a twinkling of an eye. We're going to all be changed at the last trumpet. Now, what does that phrase, the last trumpet, mean? Well, there's a lot of debate about taking it to the last, the seventh trumpet of Revelation chapter 8. And... Um, some other people related to the, the great trumpet of Matthew chapter 24. I don't really think that it's, you can nail down very specifically the time element in the Apostle Paul's thinking. I think one of the things that believers need to do, they need to learn to do, is they need to learn to rejoice and to meditate and to think about what we really know very clearly from the text. You see, when I was taught this particular text, we really did not focus on a dead, crumbling corpse that once was beautifully alive, but now they're dead. 
and the terrible depression and the downness that comes as we live wrestling with older parents that are growing older and, and victims that suddenly get cancer and we watch their body deteriorate. We didn't talk about that at seminary. You know what we talked about? Whether this was the seventh trumpet and why it could not be the seventh trumpet because that would ruin our dispensational system and we couldn't have that because the school would have to close down. We went on and on. No, we didn't talk like that. What I'm saying is we had a whole airtight system of thought. And one thing I really don't think that we can be absolutely clear, if the scripture was that clear, the debate would not rage, would not rage. Because it would be very clear, you know, exactly the timing of all these events. I personally believe that this event takes place before the tribulation. But one thing I want you to know as a family of believers is that what is very important in this scripture is not exactly when in the program of God this takes place, but the fact that it's going to take place. And I want you to think about the wonder of that. Think about your body that is starting to hurt and is moving towards death. And some of you that are older say, man, my time is running out. And man, that can pull you down. And the Apostle Paul says, no, it isn't. You're really moving towards the beginning of time. You're moving towards the great change. You're moving towards the big change. Your spirit can be as strong as anything. It can get stronger and stronger and stronger because nothing can separate that, that great hope from you. And as you grow older, you never know the big snatch could take place at any moment and your bodies will be changed. That's what we know for sure in this passage. And that was the great hope that the Apostle Paul shared with the Corinthians. In the last trumpet, I think the thing that you could say about the last trumpet is in the Old Testament, the trumpet was the sound of battle. For example, at Jericho, it's one of the major stories. You think of the trumpet sounding and the walls come tumbling down. And same thing in our military life today. If you've ever been in the military, you live your life by trumpets. And there's a trumpet call of charge and it's a sound of battle. And that was, that's the context. This is like the trumpet call of God that tells the kingdom of Satan it's the end. And the kingdom of this world is going to become the kingdom of his Christ. And Jesus Christ is going to vanquish his enemies and the last enemy to destroy it will be the enemy of death. And that particular thing that I've just stressed is very intrinsic to the thinking of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians. In chapter 1, he, he tells them, you are eagerly awaiting the coming of the Son of God. And one thing that I want all of you to do, no matter what system of theology you're in, I want you to be eagerly awaiting the Son of God with the Corinthians. And if I'm not, and if you're not, then we're not living in the biblical world. We're not living with a great confidence that the Apostle Paul wants us to have. Jesus could break through the blue even while I'm talking and will be changed in a moment, in a twinkling. It tells us this perishable will put on an imperishability, this mortal will put on immortality. When the imperishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, and he quotes from Isaiah chapter 25 and Hosea 13 verse 14, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? You've all seen the ad on the wide world of sports, you know, where it talks about the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. Remember that? And the guy comes off that ski jump, 
And if you've seen ski jumping live, like when I was a kid, we used to go up to Lake Placid and we'd go up there and we'd watch these guys come off the ski jump. If you watch that live, then that TV, constant repetition, they finally stopped it, will send chills up and down your spine every time you see it. Because, man, that jump on TV looks high. You ought to climb up the top of it and look down it. I mean, I wouldn't want to just go down a regular mountain that's that steep without having a great big chute at the end with an even steeper mountain that, man, you're going to fly for 200 yards, well, no, not that far, but pretty far in the air. And man, when that guy comes off the side, you go, ah, the agony of defeat. That's what we're all living in, the agony of defeat. We get injured, we get hurt, we face disease, we wrestle with problems in our family. But what Paul is telling us is that we're moving towards a day when we're going to fly. We're going to come down that steep ski jump and we're not going to go off the edge. We're not going to deteriorate. We're not going to crumble in dust. But we're going to come off that jump and the Lord Jesus is going to come back and we're going to fly like we've never flown before. In fact, that's why there's such a yearning in the heart. You know, you watch um, a movie. And man, what's that movie they did with the ugly little creature? Remember that movie by Spiegel? E.T., remember that? See, E.T. was picking up on that. There's a great hunger in our heart for a thrill. And when those little boys came flying down the street and they suddenly took off on their bicycles, the whole audience explodes. Yay! Yay! The thrill of victory! Why does that happen in us? Because God implanted in every one of your hearts, man, I want to fly. I want to be changed. I want to escape into a world where things are going to be right, where there's going to be beauty and love and joy. The only tragedy is that until that hope becomes rooted in Jesus Christ, we won't have it. Now Paul closes the chapter by telling us this. He says that the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Those verses are interpreted by the Apostle Paul in two very strategic chapters that you need to know well. Those verse, the verse that I just read, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, is Romans 7 and Romans 8. The sting of death is sin. What it means is the agony of death is that death is a punishment. It's a punishment because of our sin. The wages of sin is death. Genesis chapter 2 said, if you eat of the tree, you will surely die. They ate of the tree and they surely died. You're reading the book of Genesis. And Adam died. And Cain died. And Abel died. And you come right down through. Everyone dies. And he died. 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 And you finish Genesis, the end of the book. And it says, and he died. And he was buried in a coffin in Egypt. That's the way the book ends. Does that for a reason. In Adam, we all die. The sting of death is sin. That's why you don't rejoice over death. Death isn't a good thing. Physical death is not a good thing. I want to make it very clear to you. The scripture never tells a believer that you should think death is a good thing. Now, the death of a believer is a good thing because of what it does. It takes a believer home. But the death itself is not a good thing. 
God isn't sitting in heaven saying, oh, this is great, watching one of my creations that I breathe the breath of life into. Watch that, that, that breath slowly get labored and slowly leave. Oh, it's so exciting. God isn't like that at all. God's furious when that happens. It's the antithesis of what he is. Our Heavenly Father creates men, creates women out of the dust of the earth, breathe in their nostrils the death of life. He's the greatest artist that ever lived. He's not an artist that suddenly goes, ah, don't like that one, tear it all up. And destroy it. It's Satan that does that. And it's our sin that does that. Death happens as a penalty of our sin. And then it says this, now the power of sin is the law. Now that's a hard phrase. Think about that phrase. That's a complicated phrase. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that the law is bad. God's moral righteous law is good. So what does he mean that the power of sin is the law? In Romans 7, the Apostle Paul tells us that there was a time in his life when he was just gleefully going through, thought everything was fine. He thought he was living his life really, really good. And then he read the last commandment, thou shalt not covet. And he says, and he died. You see, he said, I would have never known that coveting was evil until the law came and said, it's wrong to covet. It's wrong to have that instantaneous desire in your life to want what God doesn't want for you. In fact, you know what? If God says, thou shalt not commit adultery, there's a part of every single one of us that says, that's what I want to do. Boy, that would be exciting. That would be thrilling. And you wrestle with that. I've often used the illustration. You take a bunch of little kids, tell them you can play with all the toys in the nursery. Play with everyone you want. Just this one red truck. Don't play with that. You leave the room and all the kids are fighting over the red truck. Why? Because the power of sin is the law. The law not only makes us aware of coveting, aware of stealing, aware of adultery, but it also stimulates in us a desire to do the very thing we have been told not to do. That's the power of sin, is the law. The law awakens in us coveting of every kind, sinning of every kind. It's like when I was a kid. Some of the churches used to put out, don't read this hundred books. I've used that with you at other times. All of my Roman Catholic friends went out and read the top ten on the list. It was like book reviews for them. Don't go see these movies. Man, we all go out and see it. Because the power of sin is the law. Now, how do you get victory over that? It says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what does Jesus Christ do? He comes into our life and we die with him, which means that the penalty of the law has been paid in Christ. You've been joined with Christ so that when Christ died, you died. And so that the just penalty of death that the law requires has been paid in the cross of Calvary. And Jesus Christ paid it all. When you believe in him, you're united with him, and that sets you free from the law of sin and death. And that's what enables us to be able to shout, where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Now, what's the conclusion of all this? Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. 
Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. I want to ask you a question. What are you devoting your life to? What am I devoting my life to? Now I want to share with you. Some of you can get down and discouraged in your life and depressed because you're physically ill. And there's some medicine you can take that will really, really help you with that. And you need to not feel guilty about taking advantage of that because the text has told us that we have physical bodies. And if our physical bodies do not have the right chemical balance within them, we can have very intense emotional swings. And this text has told us that we have a mortal body and we're, we don't have our immortal body yet. So this mortal body is going to need medication at times. It's going to need help at times. It needs rest. If you don't get enough rest, your mortal body, because it's not immortal yet, will get very ill and very down. So all believers, I want you to listen to me. Don't try to live now as if you've already got an immortal physical body because you don't. And you'll ruin the body that God gave you and he gave it to you for a purpose to use for him now. Second of all, I want you to realize that if you go through a death, if you go through a divorce, if you go through the loss of a loved one, if you go through the loss of your job, it's a normal emotional swing in your life that maybe you are riding a high here, you're going to go down to here. It's part of life. When I go up and I speak a word of life and I speak for 25 hours and I come back, I'm resolving my life. I will not make major decisions in my life for about two weeks. Why? Because if you put out all this energy at the top of the curve, your mortal body and your emotions and your psychological life is going to have to come back down here. So learn to live with that. Learn to live with the cycle. But what I'm concerned about, what makes that cycle really tough, is when you come down to the bottom of the curve and you begin to analyze your life and you're coming up zero. What have I done? What have I accomplished? There's no meaning to it. I haven't lived for the right values. Then at the bottom of the curve, you can just spiral right down. And that's where this passage is so important. I don't care how young you are or how old you are. If you're in Christ, if you're in Christ, your work is going to make a difference. It says we need to be steadfast. That means we need to hold on to the belief in the resurrection. We need to be steadfast in that belief. It says we need to be immovable. We need to be very careful not to move away from the biblical commitments that we've been learning about in the book of Corinthians. We need to build our lives on those great truths of the faith. Thirdly, we need to abound in the work of the Lord. And you say, Dave, how do you abound in the work of the Lord? Think about your life. When did you abound? You'll abound when you're caught up in a cause that's worthwhile. In fact, human beings will be happy even if it's the wrong cause. They'll abound. But then their abounding will turn to tragic despair when they live their life long enough and find out that their cause wasn't great enough. What I'm really concerned about is what cause are you caught up in? What great, great vision of reality 
are you caught up in? Really concerned about that. If your vision is, I want to get a good career, I want to have a nice job, I want to have cars, I want to be able to have enough money to be able to travel a little bit, I want to put enough money away so that I can retire, and that's what you're driving for, then there's going to come a time when it all falls in and it's going to be empty. And some of you are involved in a totally different cause. What are some of the causes you're involved in? Some of you come out every Wednesday night and you work with kids in Awana. And in the kids in Awana, you try to tell them about the resurrected Christ. Now, I want to challenge you. You're going to be discouraged about that. I, every Wednesday night, you're not going to want to come. Every once in a while, Satan will give you a break, but not too often. When you get here and you start to be involved with the kids, when you get all done, as you presented Jesus died on the cross, Jesus rose again, when you leave that, you'll say, that was really meaningful. Some of you are going to teach Sunday school. The kids can be disobedient. You need to send them out in the hall. You struggle. You say, I'm not really sure I'm a good teacher. And you're trying to grow and you're not sure you're accomplishing anything. Paul says to you, he says, abound in the work of the Lord. Some of you are at work. And you're trying to witness to your friends about the Lord, but it doesn't look like you're getting any results. Paul says to you today, hang in there. Abound in the work of the Lord. Because he tells us this, your labor will not be in vain. And I just want to share with you, I go through discouragement just like you. I'm not always up. You know why? Because we're all human beings. All of you are going to want to quit. You're going to have those feelings. And what does Paul say to you? He says, be immovable. Be steadfast. Because your labor will not be in vain. That's the great message of this, of this text. Now, I want to share something real practical with you. Usually when we talk about the coming of the Lord, we talk about, well, you need to do something gigantic for the Lord. I love the way the Apostle Paul finishes 1 Thessalonians. It's almost like he's discussing things with the elders in Thessalonians, in Thessalonica, and he says this, we really need to teach our people to work with their hands and to be diligent so that they won't be dependent upon anyone and so they'll have a good testimony within the community. Isn't that an incredible way? You know, I think there's some of you that are working every day. You get up early in the morning, and you go to a regular job, and some of you do work with your hands. And you hear a text like this, and you say, well, that's great for Dave. You know, he gets up and preaches. Man, he'll get a big reward when we get to heaven, and boy, that'll be great. But little old me, I don't make any difference in the kingdom of God. You know, God didn't look at that at all that way. You see, when you became a believer, he gave every single one of you gifts. What I'm doing is a gracious gift from the Lord. The Lord chooses to take the gift away, then it stops. Because it's all a gift. But you know what? He didn't just give me gifts. He gave every one of you gifts. And all different kinds. And all he asks you to do is to express love to him and praise to him in the everydayness of life, abounding in the work of the Lord. And one day when we go home to be with the Lord, the miracle of grace is going to be 
that the Lord will put together a whole fabric of interconnectedness of how you touched all these different lives because you abounded in your place in the family. Don't be motivated by guilt. Don't try to please me. Don't try to please your parents. You don't even have to try to please the Lord, quote, quote. You need to enjoy him. You need to let him love you. And you need to respond to that love by remaining firm in your commitment to biblical resurrected faith. Be strong in your commitment to the gospel. Do the simple things, the everyday things, for the glory of God. And your labor will not be in vain. What an important insight. Jesus is coming back at any second, but he is not urging each of us to go around like chickens with our heads cut off. Instead, he wants us to do that carpentry work, bang on that keyboard, draw the architectural drawings, put in that electrical service, stay awake during that board meeting so that we will earn the respect of our unbelieving friends. And as we demonstrate the love, the joy, and the wisdom of life in Christ, our friends will want to know the reason for the hope that is within us. Let's stop trudging through this day and start abounding.